0: An operation was attempted that had never been done before on another human being. Nine years previous to the procedure, it was successfully done in California, only it was done on a dog. Dogs and humans aren't too different, though, right? In 1967, a doctor in South Africa was about to find out. He attempted to replicate the same technique that was used on the dog and tried on a man whose life was literally in his hands. Due to complications following the surgery, the man unfortunately died less than three weeks after the operation. However, the operation itself was a success. It was the first human heart transplant. And now there have been, there's over 3,500 heart transplants happening each year around the world. According to Mayo Clinic, their statistics say that half the people who survived the first year are still alive 13 and a half years later. Isn't that amazing? You can literally take the heart of another human being and replace your failing heart with this heart, and you could make it another 10 laps around the sun. I don't know about you, but that's some pretty impressive cardio to make it all the way around the sun that many times. As amazing as that is, though, there's a different heart transplant that won't just give you another decade of life, but one that instead will, that will give you a heart that will never stop beating. A heart that will pump for all eternity. I invite you to open up your Bibles with me to Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll read verse 29. Today's sermon is going to be a little bit different in that we're going to be, rather than sticking in one text, we'll be looking at a few other texts following a theme throughout Scripture. This morning we're going to look at our need for a heart exchange, the Lord's heart for us, and finally the transplant that God provides for us. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. I'll invite you to stand, if you're able, out of respect for God's word. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 29. Reading in Jesus' name. Oh, that they had such a heart in them, that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. Father God, these are your words. Your word is true. We pray this morning that you would sanctify us in your truth, that you would help us to see who you are and help us to see your heart and your concern for us, and not only for us, but for all people, Lord. We pray that you would convict our hearts of sin this morning, but also comfort us with the gospel too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. The book of Deuteronomy is the last book that Moses writes. And as we read through it, you'll find that there are a lot of passages that might sound familiar to you. And you might even ask yourself, didn't I just read this like a week ago or a few weeks ago? Deuteronomy serves as a sort of summary of the previous books that Moses has written. Moses is about to die. He's reminding the people of the wonderful things that God has done. Reminding them of their history. Reminding them of the exodus reminding the, thing, the deliverance that God has accomplished for them, as well as the many judgments that they received throughout their time of disobedience in the wilderness, and encourages them yet again to obey God. Towards the beginning of the book, while Moses is talking with the Lord, the Lord's concern for his people bleeds through his words. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would fear me and keep all my commandments always, that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. The Lord isn't some totalitarian dictator who says, as long as you're in line with me and doing everything that I've commanded, then everything's going to be just fine for you. Just don't rock the boat. He's not in it for himself and what's in it for him. No, his concern is for his people. His concern is ultimately for you, for me. His concern is for all people that it may be well with them and with their sons forever. The laws of God aren't given to us to prevent us or keep us from living our lives to the fullest now. The laws of God are given to us for our own good. How often do we recognize that? Do we view the laws of God as things that keep us from having fun? things that are only given to us to make our lives more difficult? Are we too busy trying to find our own loopholes to the laws of God, the things that he has declared, that we entirely miss the fact that they are given to us for our good, that it may be well with you and with your sons forever? Reading this verse, you can hear the Lord's agony. What is it? Why is God upset here in this verse? What is it that pains the Lord here? It's not that the people aren't obeying his every command. No, that's only a symptom of what's going on, only a symptom of the problem. It's a side effect of what's really paining the Lord. It's deeper than that. What is it? Look at the beginning of the verse. Oh, that they had such a heart in them that would fear me and keep all my commandments always. The thing that grieves God is the heart condition of the people. Simply put, they don't have a heart that fears and loves God above all things. Their hearts are utterly incapable of doing that. This isn't the only place in Scripture that we read this. As Moses is recording the events in Genesis 6, right before the flood, God explains what's going on at this time. He writes this in Genesis 6, 5. He says, Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart, was only evil continually. They were certainly bad times. And the root of this issue that was found here during this day isn't that, well, they just, they're good people, they just got caught up with the wrong crowd. It's not what Scripture says. Scripture says the issue was their own hearts. That every thought of his heart was only evil Continually. It's not just that their hearts weren't capable of pleasing God. No, it's beyond that. It's deeper than that. It's worse than that. But every single thought and intention of their hearts was only evil. It was actively opposed to God. The heart of man was corrupt. And before we start thinking that, I'm so glad that we've evolved into a much better product than back then before the flood, the heart of man is described the exact same way in Ephesians 2. The heart of man not only was corrupt, the heart of man is corrupt. As we've we've read through the wanderings in the wilderness after the Exodus, and we're amazed at how quickly these eyewitnesses of God's deliverance and his power, seeing it firsthand, how quickly they turn their backs on God. And while that may amaze us, it shouldn't really surprise us, because again, that's the heart of man. You can change behavior. You can keep people in line but you can't change their heart. And the hearts were the problem. This is why God says, oh, that they had such a heart in them that they would follow me and obey me in everything. The prophet Jeremiah has the same message, saying that the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? You might think you understand your own heart, but we don't. It's beyond repair. It's sicker than we even know what to do with. The bad behavior and the disobedience, again, isn't the thing that grieves the Lord, though it does grieve the Lord, but it's a symptom of a deeper issue. He knows the destruction that comes when we follow after our own hearts. It never ends well. God knows, as he's saying this here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and as we read through the book of Deuteronomy, we'll see God knows what lays ahead, what lies ahead for these Israelites. And even yet, in Deuteronomy 5, he says, I wish they had a heart that followed me. This is the problem. No law is going to change that. It can't change it. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, the Lord prescribes a fix for the problem. He says, So circumcise your heart. Stiffen your neck no longer. And then he explains why in the next verse. He says, For the Lord your God is the God of gods and the Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who does not show partiality Nor take a bribe. Meaning you can't say, God, I'm sorry I screwed up today. I'll make it up to you tomorrow. I'll try harder. I know I will. It's not what it's about. But we follow the Lord because he is the Lord, your God, the God of gods, the Lord of gods, the Lord of lords, the great and mighty and awesome God. We submit to him because he is so much greater than we are. But the problem is we can't. We can't because it's not there in our hearts. Our hearts are the issue. They do not want to submit to God. Instead, they rebel. Even if we wanted to submit to God, our hearts won't allow us to do it. The Lord is God, however, and there is no hope for those who continually rebel against him. The heart must be dealt with. So circumcise your hearts and stiffen your necks no longer, God says. The Lord knows this, and he sees it, which is why he's grieved as he's talking to Moses. It's why he was sorry that he made man, as he says in Genesis 6, and why his heart was grieved. It's why as Moses is writing his final book, the Lord tells Moses again, write these things for the people. Remind them again of my faithfulness, of my goodness. Remind them again that these laws that I have given to you are for your own good, that it may be well with you. And with your sons forever. It hurts to be rejected, doesn't it? Nobody likes that feeling. Rejection can come in all kinds of forms. And it can leave scars that can take years or even decades to heal. Some people never really heal from rejections of the past. Whether it's being turned down from a date. Whether it's being cut from a team or whether it's having your own kid who you've loved suddenly turn on you and want nothing more to do with you ever again. It's painful. Imagine how much more painful it is for the Lord who is grieving over his people here. These are the people whom he delivered. The people whom he has provided for and whom he has sustained. The ones he gave his word to. The ones whom he has entered into a covenant with. The people who he made himself known to. The ones who have experienced his undeserved love and affection. These are the ones whose hearts remain unchanged. These are the ones who are told to circumcise their hearts and stiffen your necks no longer. And still they continue on in their stubbornness. And the Lord weeps. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He never has and he never will. Which is why the Lord weeps in Genesis 6. That's why he's sorry that he made man. Because he knows the awful, wretched condition of our hearts. And he didn't give up on them. No, no, he continued to send prophet after prophet to them. He continued to pour out his love and his grace and his favor on them. He continued to call them back to himself. The book of Hosea and the prophet of Hosea was given to us to be a graphic picture of God's love for his people. Hosea was called to marry a prostitute. All the while knowing that this prostitute would leave the comfort and the security of a marriage and go back to prostitution. All the while knowing this, God calls him, Hosea, marry this prostitute over here. Because this is to be a picture of what Israel is doing to me. I have betrothed them to myself, and they have all the safety and security of this marriage, and instead they desire to turn their backs on me and go back to a life of prostitution. It's graphic, and it's meant to catch our attention. Listen to what the Lord says in Hosea 11. He says this, When Israel was a youth, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. And the more they called them, the more the prophets called them, the more they went from them. They kept sacrificing to the bales and burning incense to idols. Yet it is I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them in my arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with the cords of a man, with bonds of love. And I became to them as one who lifts the yoke from their jaws. And I bent down and fed them. And skipping ahead to verse 7, my people are bent on turning from me. All the things that God has done and yet he sees, my people are bent on turning from me. If you were God, wouldn't you want to just give up? It's been a thousand years. I mean, I've tried for a thousand years and they still haven't gotten it yet. But God doesn't give up. And all throughout the Old Testament, we read this story and this story continues to unfold. God is calling people to himself, and his people continue to turn away, continue to go back to the same sins that they had done before. That same story continues even when Jesus walked on the earth. Today we will celebrate Palm Sunday. We remember Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem as people are saying, Hosanna, Lord, save us! And they're excited because their king is coming to deliver them. The people are on a high shouting, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in the heaven and glory in the highest. And as Jesus is approaching Jerusalem, Luke records this in his gospel. He sees the city and he weeps over it. The people are excited and they're so happy that Jesus is coming, their king is coming, and Jesus in return is weeping over them. Why? Why? After his triumphal entry, Jesus addresses the crowds. And again, his love for them bleeds through his words. Matthew records these words of Christ for us. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. And you were unwilling. Jesus is weeping. As the crowds are cheering, because he knows, you don't understand. You're gonna reject me. I know what's coming in just a few short days. I know that instead of shouting, Hosanna, you'll be shouting, Crucify him. The heart of God never changed for his people. Jesus didn't turn back on that donkey that day, he continued to go forward into Jerusalem he continued to call people back to himself. And he continues to do the same thing for us today, to call people to repentance and faith. It's the reason why Jesus took on flesh. It's the reason why Jesus unties this cult and fulfills this prophecy and enters Jerusalem, all the while knowing what lies ahead. To be the savior of mankind. Because we cannot save ourselves. To solve our problem, not his problem. Our problem, yours and mine, to give to us a heart transplant, to offer to us a circumcision of the heart which he prescribed back in Deuteronomy, but we couldn't do it on our own. God has provided the solution to the problem of our own wicked hearts, and that solution is found in his one and only son. God has been doing heart transplants long before 1967, long before any doctor determined to do it. And this transplant, too, requires a donor, someone who would give his life so that others would be able to live. Paul wrote about it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where it says that God made him, God made Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. And a few verses earlier reading that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. God knew that we can't circumcise our own hearts. No matter how hard we try to open up our metaphorical chests and dig in and cut this evil, wicked heart out of us, we cannot remove our hearts of stone and change our rebellious nature. There's no amount of good behavior that's going to make up for it. Our hearts continue to be self-serving, self-satisfying, self-gratifying. The operation that needs to be done is one that we are entirely powerless to do. And though for the moment that seems to leave us without hope, it doesn't leave us hopeless. Because it's an operation that God not only has said needs to be done, but he promises to do. And one that God does. And the heart that he gives us isn't a heart of some random cadaver. The heart that he gives us is a new heart. The Lord declared it through the prophet Ezekiel. He says this, I will give you a new heart, and I will put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Jeremiah describes this heart as a heart that fears God, one that will not turn away from the Lord, one in which the laws of God are inscribed upon it. This would be a heart that fears and loves God above all things, one that desires to follow God, one that moves us to obedience, a heart that grieves over sin rather than a heart that relishes in it, a heart that runs to Jesus again, and again and again how does the Lord do this operation? How does he give to us this heart? We're told in the verse before the one's I read in Ezekiel 36 these things. The Lord says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. This heart that comes, it comes with a new spirit. Not just any spirit, but his spirit, a Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit, the one who makes us holy. As we looked in Sunday school the morning, the one who makes you righteous as well. Scripture speaks of it in a number of places, that this is the spirit that we receive when we are united with Christ in his death. And when we're raised to new life, as he was raised to new life. We are new creatures, the old has gone and the new has come. Paul writes this for us in Titus that he saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. Jesus knew this is what he is entering Jerusalem for. Jesus knew this is the gift that he is going to give all mankind to as many as believe in him. To those who are baptized and believe in him, to them he gives the right to become children of God. And they will be saved. So when does this happen? When do we receive this new heart? When are we united with Christ? Paul also answers that question for us in Romans 6. We're united with Christ in his death and in his resurrection through baptism. It's not just a sprinkling of water on our heads. It's the promise of God being delivered and declared to you as we receive his Holy Spirit, the one that makes us righteous. And as we grow up in life, as we continue to submit to him, we find out that we have a new heart. We find out that there is a heart in us that is not our own, but a heart in us that desires to follow God, that desires to serve him, that desires to do right. Desires to love our neighbors. That's not a heart that is our own. That's the heart transplant that comes from Christ and Christ alone. And so if you have even the slightest inkling of this in your lives, be encouraged that God is at work in your life. We see the love of God all throughout Scripture. It's here in Deuteronomy chapter 5, and it continues all the way throughout the Old Testament and into the New. In the New Testament, it's revealed more fully for us. As John writes this towards the end of the New Testament, he says, By this, the love of God was manifested in us. By this, the love of God is made known to us. We can know God's love in this way that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world so that we might live through him. And this life isn't just another 10 laps around the sun. this is eternal life for all eternity. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. It's true that God does desire obedient hearts in us. Not only does he desire it, but he does, in fact, demand it. And our hearts are disobedient. They are. But God in Christ has provided a transplant for us. God in Christ has accomplished salvation for you, and he gives to us new hearts, and he makes us new. He gives to us a new spirit, one that desires to serve him, one that desires to obey him and submit to him, one that fears and loves him, and one that continually points us to Jesus for the forgiveness of our sins, getting our eyes off of ourselves and off of our own performance and pointing us again to Christ and Christ's performance he is the atoning sacrifice for your sins and for mine and god gives to us his laws in the old testament and the new testament that it may be well with you and not only with you for this life here on this world though that's also true but that it may be well with you and with your sons forever the law of god does show us god's will it also shows us our sin and shows us that we cannot save ourselves it prepares our hearts for the Savior, who riding into Jerusalem, the crowds say, Hosanna, Lord, save us. And as we say, Hosanna, Lord, save us, we can know that Christ has come for this purpose, and that Christ has come to deliver salvation to you. Let's pray. Father God, we do come before you this morning grateful. We recognize that there is a heart inside of us that wants to do what we want to do, that doesn't want to submit to you. Father, we pray that you would forgive us of that heart. We thank you, Lord, for what you have done in order to pay the price for all of our sins. And as we remember this holy week and the work that you have done for us to accomplish our salvation, to win forgiveness for us and to deliver it to us, we pray, Lord, that you would help us to remember this each and every day. And God, as you have given to us a new spirit, as you have given to us a heart that longs to serve you, that longs to obey you, Lord, a heart that grieves over the sin that we want to do, we pray, Lord, that you would continue to point us to yourself once again and what you have done. Thank you for giving to us a new spirit, your Holy Spirit, who not only shows us the way that we are to walk and continues to point us to you, but one who continues to sanctify us and make us holy. God, thank you that this is your work in our hearts. Thank you, Lord, that our righteousness comes from you and your work and not ourselves. Help us, Lord, to see this each and every day and to live in this glorious truth and this glorious freedom. Lord, we pray today and every day that you would save us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.